thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Our sermon passage comes from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to jump around in this very good but very long chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, 14 through 21, and 54 through 58. You found on page 961 in the Bibles we provide. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jump down to verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be pitied most of all people. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jump down to verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Father, it is easy for us to not believe, to not understand, to not know. So massage your truth deeply into our hearts this morning that we might see the truth of your resurrection and what difference that makes in our lives and what difference it should make in how we live. Father, I don't have anything worth saying, and you have the words of eternal life. So open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for those of y'all that were here last week, we started a series, a two-week series, which... Uh, if you ever have the opportunity to teach a series, I would encourage two weeks. It's the way to do it, you know? Do one, finish one, go back and sit down. It's great. These, like, 12-week ones that James does, he's just stronger and better than I am. So I'm really excited. Last week, we looked at what if 
God really came as a baby. We've been celebrating this Advent and Christmas season. What difference does it make if God really came as a baby? And then today we're going to look at what if Jesus really conquered sin and death? We sing about it. We talk about it. These things that we say are so important. What difference would it make in how we live and what we believe if it was true? And we actually lived like it was true. So as we start thinking about truth, it's important for us to say that there's things that we believe that are not true. Um, I am sorry to have to do this. I'm going to burst some bubbles this morning, and I, I apologize in so many ways, but you need to know. You need to know the truth. You were brought up believing some things that are not true. One, if you swallow gum, it does not live in your stomach for seven years. <laughs> Whomever told that to you, mom, whoever told that to you, it's not true. You need to know. You need to know. If you feed rice to a bird, it doesn't explode. If you've like not for your wedding, didn't want to have rice, because again, the birds are going to eat it and they're going to, have you cooked rice before? It takes 20 minutes of boiling water. I don't think a bird's got that in them. It's not going to explode. I'm sorry if that's what you were hoping to do today. It's not going to happen. If you shave your hair, it doesn't come back faster and fuller. <laughs> if you believe that lie, come on in, the water's warm. <laughs> Didn't work. Doesn't happen. I shave it all the time. It's still thin. Nothing to happen. Maybe you've believed other things, like if you crack your knuckles, you're going to get like arthritis. No. No. If you cross your eyes, it's going to stay that way. There are people in here who've never crossed their eyes because they're so scared that that's going to happen. Guess what? You can. Feel free to do it right now. <laughs> cross your eyes, they're going to stay. And this last one, I was really hesitant. I am going to ruin some parents tonight. I'm sorry for this on the front end. I apologize. You do not have to wait an hour after eating to go swimming. They did a study a few years ago, and the you know, Academy of Pediatrics said, you need to finish swallowing your food, and then you can go swimming. <laughs> so if you're eating, not a good idea to swim. But if you finish eating, so parents, I'm sorry we can't perpetuate that anymore. Kids, give your parents a break. They're just tired. Swimming or at the beach all day long is a lot to ask, okay? Give them 10 minutes, 15, maybe 30. An hour would be awesome, okay? But it's not true. So why do I tell you all that, except the fact that it's fun, is because it's easy for us to get caught up in believing these things that aren't true. And we live in a culture that loves this idea of fake news. It's hard for us to know what's true. It's hard for us to know what to believe. And if we can't bank on some things, we find ourselves in a lot of trouble. And we have a culture that constantly pushes against this. And in the context of this passage is Paul writing to the church of Corinth, which was a Greek city, and the Greeks did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe that it happened. They thought it was just a nice little urban myth, a nice little fairy tale story to make people feel better. They believed that death was the end, and at best it was a release from these kind of mortal bodies that kept us down. They had no hope that extended beyond that. And they basically made fun of any hope that did exist by others. And you know what happened? That opinion started to pervade the church. The church being in that culture would hear it and start to believe it and wonder for themselves. Maybe there is no resurrection. Maybe this doesn't really happen. So Paul writing to his people knows this and goes, we're going to hit the main points here. I want to make sure that you understand that this is actually a really big deal. 
And what he's going to do is answer the same questions that people in Corinth have, which are the same questions that we would have about the resurrection. What he's going to do as we get this opportunity to be with him today, he's going to give us some reminders. He's going to give us some ramifications and then he's going to give us a response. So first some reminders, why did this matter? Why was this important? And what he says to them right off the bat is what I'm telling you is of first importance. It's the most important thing. This is essential to who you are, essential to your understanding. You've got to get this. You've got to understand this. And this wasn't even my idea. I didn't come up with this clever way of thinking about the world. God did. I'm giving to you what I received, what I saw for myself when Jesus rose before me, when I was on the road to Emmaus, what I saw, what I've learned, what I've taught, what he's spoken. That's what I give to you now. The things that are of first importance, the things you have to know, have to remember, have to believe. First, Christ died for our sins. Notice he doesn't call him Jesus, the more familiar name, but Christ, this picture of the Messiah, the chosen one. And he says he died for our sins. This is important. He didn't just die. He wasn't just a good man or a good teacher and then died. He died and he died for a purpose for our sins. Reminding us that we had a problem and we had an issue we couldn't handle on our own and that he came as a sacrifice for our sins. He paid the price and penalty for our sins. That was the purpose in which he came. The very first thing off the bat, we have to know that, we have to believe that, we have to understand that. And he says it's according to the scriptures. You notice that? This was God's plan from the beginning. When he mentions the scriptures, the gospels weren't written. The letters weren't published yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying, you know what you look at? Look at the sacrificial system. What does that point to? A suffering savior. Look at the day of atonement. Look at the scapegoat. Look at Isaac and Abraham. Look at all these pictures that pointed over and over again to the fact that God was going to provide the sacrifice that our sins needed. He died for our sins according to the scripture. And then he was buried. An important part of this, he was buried. There was an actual body, an actual corpse. Jesus stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. They laid him in there. Because there's all this conjecture that goes on that talks about, well, maybe the disciples stole his body. Can we, for a second, just deal with that? Think about the disciples for a minute, Okay. These guys who, when they were first told that Jesus had raised again for the dead, were very skeptical. One of which saying, until I touch him, I'm not going to believe. If they stole his body, would they not be the first ones at the temple? Going, he's risen. He's, he's risen like he promised he would. He's no longer in the tomb. Come and see. So when they hear this great news, and then when Jesus appears to them, how do they celebrate this? They go back to their old life and go, go fishing. Is that what someone who had stole the body of Jesus would have done? And even more that, they died believing this lie, perpetuating this lie. If he's not really risen, if his body was stolen out of the tomb, would you die for that? Would you die an excruciating death for that? No. He was buried. It's proof that he actually died. His death mattered. It was important. He died. He was buried. Then he was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. 
Christ was raised. It's one of the parts we don't talk about as much that is of utmost importance. If all he did was die for us, even as a sacrificial death for us, if he's not risen again, we still have issues. We still have a problem with death. He rose again. And when he was risen, what happened is God is saying, I approve your sacrifice. Your sacrifice was enough. It was good enough. I receive it because that I raise you up. You are now living again. And what's super important about this, we're going to get into the Greek, which I know as soon as somebody starts saying the Greek or the Hebrew, everybody's eyes glaze over. They look at their watch and figure out where they're going to lunch. I get it. I'll be short and sweet. I promise. The tense of the verb here. Oh, I'm losing you. I can tell. The tense of the verb here is perfect. And in Greek, you're like, oh, Greek, perfect tense. Of course, you know this all the time. No, it talks about a past action and its future like consequences. So what it means is he was raised and will continue in a state of being resurrected forever. It wasn't just a one-time action. And why does that matter? Why is that important? Jesus wasn't the only one who was raised from the dead. Remember Lazarus? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But you know what happened to Lazarus later? He died again. So if Jesus was raised for a moment, for a year, for 10 years, for 50 years, and dies again, we're still in trouble. But what it tells us, this beautiful scripture, he was raised and continues in a resurrected state forever. And that it's not only perfect, it's passive. Jesus didn't do this himself. God did it. God was the one who acted. He was raised by God. Again, as we talked about, because his sacrifice had been accepted. He was raised for us. He was raised to life that we might have hope. And then he appeared to lots of people, lots of witnesses. This very important part of this, this was not some fairy tale that, you know, someone had come up with. He's like, no, no, no. You want to know how to know for sure? He appeared to Peter, Cephas in the Greek. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to James. He appeared to me on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to over 500 witnesses who saw him, who ate with him, who drank with him, who recognized him, who touched him, who spent time with him. And what he tells us is many of them are still alive. Why would that matter? He's saying, if you have concerns, if you have doubts, if you have issues, Go ask them. They were there. Don't take my word for it. Take their word for it. Go interview as many as you want. You don't write this in a season when people are still alive to say, yeah, that didn't happen. 500 people in the same way that his burial was proof that he was dead. These appearances are proof that he was resurrected. You'll find person after person who tries to refute the resurrection or refute, refute Christianity goes. And when they look into the witnesses, what happens? Almost inevitably, they become Christians themselves because they can't fight against the truth. So obvious, so clear. He died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared for us. We have to understand this. We have to own this. We have to believe this. If you don't believe me, you don't believe scripture, go seek out for yourself the truth of this. God's not scared of that. Go find the evidence, find the truth because this matters. 
And that's where we go to the second part, the ramifications of this. There's a lot of things that you'll talk about. There's a lot of things that are subjective in our life, okay? If I said, you know, what's the best burger in Knoxville? We would have a wide variety of opinions, and most of you would be wrong. And that's okay. That's fine, and it's not that big of a deal. But if we have these things that are better or worse, I mean, worst case scenario, if you go, oh, hey, the right Kroger to go to at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday is this one, if you're wrong, you just wait longer. But if we're wrong about this, it changes everything. If we've banked our whole life, our whole existence on a lie, it changes everything. So Paul wants them to feel the weight of what they're saying. He's saying, okay, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, here are some things you need to know. Number one, our preaching is empty. If Christ hasn't been raised, preaching is empty. You are wasting your time. It's empty. It's useless. It's worthless. And not only the preaching of the word that you see on a Sunday morning, when we share with other people about Jesus, it's useless. Jesus isn't raised. Worse than that, it makes us out to be liars, that we are misrepresenting God, that Paul says, that we're saying something about him that's not true because we say he's risen again. And you know who else it makes to be a liar? Jesus. Because Jesus said he would rise again. These people who don't believe in the resurrection yet say Jesus was a great moral teacher and a great man don't really understand. As C.S. Lewis puts it, here's the deal. He is either a lunatic who believed that he was going to be raised again and wasn't, so he's crazy. He's a liar. He knew he couldn't be raised from the dead, but he still told everybody, and he perpetuated the lie, or he's the Lord of the universe. There's no other options. Jesus would be a liar. Preaching is empty. Your faith is futile. You're wasting your time being here. You would have done better to sleep in and go to brunch and play golf and beat the Baptist to lunch today. Like there's a lot of things you could have done with your time a lot better than being here right now. Don't pray. Why? To whom? Don't read your Bible. It's just an old antiquated document. If the resurrection is false and the faith that it produces is false, it's futile because you know what? You're still in your sins. I'm still in my sins. My biggest issue, my biggest problem has not been taken care of. You know what my best hope is? Eternal punishment away from God, because that's what my sins deserve. If Christ hasn't been raised again, if he just died, but wasn't able to conquer sin and death, we're all in huge trouble. Our faith's futile. We have nothing to hold on to. And then those that we love, that we know, they're really gone for good. One of the great hope of the Christian is we all have people who we've lost, people who've died, people who we love, and people that we long to see again in heaven in some way. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, no one will be, which means that your family and the people that you love most are gone forever. Because just like we're stuck in our sins, so are they. We have no hope. And then he says this beautiful thing, we're to be pitied the most among all people. We're this really naive, silly, pat them on the head, oh, you're so cute, you're so sweet that you believe this lie. 
We're to be pitied if this is what we believe and it's not true because we've traded everything for nothing. We've given up everything. Every sacrifice that you've ever made, every time that you've ever spent, every time that you've done the hard thing because Christ has called you to, it's worth nothing. And the world should look down on you with just pity. Pity. But then Paul changes it. But in fact, Christ has been raised. We've already dealt with the evidence. We've already dealt with the eyewitnesses. We've dealt with everything else. But he has been raised. So if we believe if he's not raised, we know the problems. If he has been raised, what is the benefit for us as his people? First, it says that Christ is first fruits. Now, I'd be surprised if any of you really understood this because I didn't have any idea. But what happened is at the end of um, at one of the celebrations, what they would do the Sabbath after the Passover is they would cut the first sheaf of grain of the harvest and the priest would go before the people and he would wave it as a wave offering to the Lord. It'd be really funny to see James wave anything. I just want him to wave something on a Sunday morning like this. This would be awesome. I'd love that. But he did that for the people signifying a couple things. One, this harvest is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. And two, we trust that this is only the beginning. We do this in worship of him, realizing that all the rest of the harvest that is to come will also come from him and also be his. So for us, when Christ being the first fruits means that because he has been resurrected, one day so will we. Charles Hodge says, resurrection of Christ is the pledge and the proof of resurrection of his people. He is the first fruits of something amazing that's going to happen. He is going to come. He's resurrected. He's going to resurrect us one day. We have that longing and that hope. And then second, he has won the victory for us. He's won the victory. There's this beautiful picture that, you know what's happened? We've read the end of the book. If you're ever that person who reads the end of the book first, I live with one of those people who loves to know how the story is going to end before they invest in the rest of it. I'm telling you how it's all going to end. Christ has already won us the victory. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned. He has given us the victory over sin. When he died as a sacrifice for our sins, he fulfilled all of the law's demands for you and for me. Which you know what that does? It conquers all of our shame and all of our guilt. We don't have to be a people who live with guilt and shame anymore because our sin has been forgiven. What do we read in Romans? We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer, we're dead to sin. Sin has no hold on us anymore for those that are in Christ. Will we still sin? Yes, but we have been given the Holy Spirit and his word that we don't have to. It doesn't have to have ultimate power over us. Our enemy doesn't have to hold us down over the guilt and shame that we feel all the time. But he's also given us victory over death. Death, the thing we're most scared of, no longer has any power over us. You see what Paul does? He's taunting death. He's quoting the Isaiah 25 that we read, and he's also quoting Hosea 14, 14. Where, oh, death is your sting. What are you going to do to me? Because where sin is forgiven, death has no more power. Death has no more punishment. And it looks differently. What do we, what do Christians call death now? Sleep. Because to us, it's nothing more than that. 
We go to sleep and we wake up and we're in the arms of Christ forever. It has conquered our fear. We don't have to be afraid of what happens anymore. We don't have to be afraid of a terminal diagnosis anymore. We don't have to be afraid of what the world could do to us anymore because we have a hope that transcends that. He's won the victory for us. And this is not just a victory for today. It's a victory for all time. To properly like translate this is thanks be to God for continually winning for us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an over and over again. It's not a one victory win. It's we went over and over. And it doesn't just conquer the future. It conquers our enemies now. Fear, guilt, shame, sin, death. Today we can live in victory because of Christ. I used to, as part of being a student minister, I used to coach um, church basketball. Loved it. It was one of my favorite things that I did. Our teams were never very good, but we also had a lot of fun. Um, one year, I had this really kind of special team that was really bad, um, but they were really tried hard. I loved them. And we, they really struggled in the pressure of the moment. I don't know if you know those people who are really pressure players. There were none of them on this team, like none of them at all. So we get to the tournament and we're playing the number one seed in the first round. You have to understand how they handled the pressure or the potential pressure. Um, I'm not exaggerating because I had to really think about it. And I'd, it was the worst 10 minutes of basketball I've ever seen in my life. And I've watched some really bad basketball over the years. Warm up. And we're just talking warm ups. There's no game going on. They're hitting each other in the back of the head with passes because they're not paying attention. We're missing layups. We're missing free throws. They're kicking the ball. They like, just lost their minds, okay? Because they're so scared about this team we're going to play because they were going to beat us by 100 points. There's no doubt in my mind. Five minutes before the game, the coach walks up to me and says, hey, we only have three players. We're going to have to forfeit. I did not pray for those kids to get sick before that starts going to circle around. But there's that moment. I'm like, we won. We won. And, and it forfeits a win. That's straight up. It's not, don't be silly about it. So I go over to my team and I'm like in that serious, like, guys, we're going to have to really, you know, buckle down. We're going to have to try really hard. Hey, they have to forfeit. We're going to win. They like, like erupt in like joyous, like cheers. It's like we won the world series or something. It's like, ah! And then we decide to play anyway. We decide to kind of put some of our players on their team and just play. It's the best they played all season. <laughs> They're draining threes. They're going behind the back passes. They have a turnover. They just laugh about it. They miss shots. No one's yelling at each other. Why? Because the victory was won. They didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to play perfect. They didn't have to play this great game for there to be victory for them. The victory was already assured when we walked onto the court. We have to remember the victory's already been won. We don't have to walk onto the court at all. Christ already did it for us that we can enjoy this life that he's given us because we've won. But for some of us, it doesn't feel that way, does it? It feels like we're losing. It feels like we're losing to the culture. It feels like we're losing to the world over and over again. Maybe we've won, and it doesn't feel that way. Reminds me of the end of World War II as you know, Japan finally you know, gives in. We finally ended the war. We had over 12,000 POWs in Japanese territory during that time. And it took for some of those like POW camps up to two weeks for them to find out that the war was over. 
And what the United States did to try to expedite the process, they dropped down these leaflets that said, you know, Japan has surrendered and everything else. And the Japanese guards thought that it was just, you know, propaganda and it wasn't true. But the Americans took them and took them to heart. Now, did their circumstances change? No. They were still starving. They were still in prison. They were still wondering when they were ever going to get out. But they had a renewed hope that the battle had been won for them. And the United States would drop supplies at different places, and it took up to a month to finally free all the POWs. But on those hard, difficult, struggle days of, can I make it one more day? They remember that the battle's been won. The war was over. Even if their circumstances looked exactly the same, they had a hope that transcended them. That's the ramifications very quickly, how should we respond? What are we as God's people, what are we called to do? One, it says to be steadfast. We need to preach this gospel to ourselves every day. So easy to forget. It's so easy to think we've got to earn salvation and earn God's love and earn God's favor. It's so easy to be swayed by what's happening around us. He says, be steadfast, people who know what you believe, who trust what you believe. Have a bedrock of faith to stand upon. Be immovable. This is the idea of our faith being pressured by all the things around us, be it people, be it culture. He says, stand firm, be immovable. Don't let the opinions of others sway what you know to be true. Don't let your circumstances sway what you know to be true. Remember in the dark what you believed in the light. Remember in the dark what you believed to be true in the light. Be immovable. This last picture, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We should always excel in the work that God has called us to. Because when our circumstances weigh us down, the last thing we want to do is help others. The last thing we want to do is pray. The last thing we want to do is read God's word. The last thing we want to do is worship. And yet those are those same habits that remind us of his goodness and his glory to us, that we are always abounding, working not to earn God's favor, but because we've received his favor, because his plan to redeem the world sits in these pews right now. Your plan A, to go, to share, to love, to care for those that God has placed all around us all the time. How did, when they did interviews with some of the POWs later, how did you survive? I kept doing what I needed to do. I kept caring for the people around me. I kept hoping that victory would come. I kept hoping that we would be freed. Guess what? You have been freed. You have a victory because Christ was raised for you and for me. And because he has risen, we have a hope that transcends the issues, problems, and circumstances of this world. We're called to be a people who are steadfast and immovable, and we're called to be people who abound in what he's called us to do, to love others in the name of Christ. So let us go do that. Let us be those people because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your scriptures. Thank you for the reminders that it is to us that we have a hope in a Savior who is not dead.
He is still alive. He is still resurrected. He is still at work among us. He is still listening to our prayers. He is still giving us grace and mercy. He is still filling us with the spirit. He is still calling us to love and serve others in his name. That his resurrection changes everything. That we are no longer in our sins. We are no longer afraid of death. We are no longer racked with guilt and shame. But we have one who has set us free from all of that, who's broken the chains and shackles that kept us down. That we might have a hope and that we might live for him. Father, help us to do that this year. Help us to trust and believe the gospel in a new way that we might be your disciples in all that we say and all that we do for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.